Hey, what's going on? I'm Travis with Proselytizer Apostasize, and uh, I'm really stoked for tonight's uh, conversation. I'm here with my really good friend, Seth. Uh, Seth Hart is a PhD student in science and theology at the University of Durham. He holds a master's in theology from Oxford Regent College and Johnson University. Uh, his current research delves into whether the field of biology and its fundamental concepts are built upon theistic foundations, as well as a contributor and uh, writer of articles for Capturing Christianity. So, Seth, welcome. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us what you're working on, things like yeah. that. Yeah, it's great to be here, Travis. Yeah, uh, one quick clarification. So, there actually is an Oxford Regent College, a Regent mm -hmm. College, Oxford. So, I have a degree from the University of Oxford and from Regent College. I was wondering so, about that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in case. So, so no one gets confused out there. Uh, no. So one from uh, Oxford and another one from Regent College in Vancouver. Um, yeah. So Thank my you. current work. So I'm working in bio, biology and teleology. Right. Now, there's been a lot of work in that uh, got done from different angles. And when most people hear the term, they normally associate that with either intelligent design mm -hmm. or people who have a more hierarchical overview, maybe the evolutionary process itself is teleological, such as what Rope has been doing, who's been on uh, Cambridge Channel, or uh, what Simon Conway Morris out of Cambridge has been doing, and I've written articles on him. Uh, my project's a bit different. What I'm asking is whether or not life forms themselves are teleological, so that uh, you it, that tele teleology itself just becomes inescapable as soon as you have a field of biology. And then if, it, if that's mm. true, what sort of implications does that have for an atheistic, mechanistic, materialistic sort of paradigm, which pervades the scientific community and pervades the sort of interpretation of um, uh, of the natural world that we have. Yeah, absolutely. And um, before we get started, you know, um, what in, in, what got you interested in this uh, particular field of study? Yeah, it's a great story. So I actually started out as a biology major. Um, okay. Yeah, I went to a state university, uh, Was uh, really was enjoying it. Um, but I also decided to want to uh, take a couple classes in theology. And sooner yeah. rather than later, I came to discover that uh, theology was where uh, my main interest li uh, would lie. And that biology would sort of always be there present, but always sort of sitting in the background. Right. So I've never, uh, I've never sort of um, given up on that biological side of theology. So it kind of grew as a natural outgrowth of wanting to integrate these two fields. So lo and behold, you know, I, I happened to get interested in this right whenever the burgeoning field of science and theology, science and religion was taking off. So now there's seats at chairs at Cambridge, Oxford, Princeton, quite a few universities. They're popping up all over. Uh, it's really one, the fastest, probably the fastest growing field in theology would be science and theology. So it's a good time to yeah. get interested in that topic. Um, but uh, yeah. the the topic itself, wh where I really decided to peg and narrow in on for this dissertation uh, this project that I'm working on is actually was partially inspired by a book I think you're currently reading. Uh, oh, uh, No God, No Science, Michael no, Hamby. No God, No Science. It was recommended to me. And I remember picking up that book and thinking, this is the most awful title I think I've ever <laughs> read for a theology book, um, which uh, be words I'd soon regret uh, because the book itself is probably one of the top 10 books I've read uh, mm. in the, yeah, absolute mind blowing book. And yeah, I, I'm really liking how, you know, it really emphasizes that, you know, metaphysics undergirds science, the scientific process and, and everything. And while they're distinct, uh, you know, the science is dis uh, distinct, you can't escape the underlying metaphysics in it. 
Yeah, and this has actually been a big criticism of the field of science and theology writ large has been that, well, let's put these two fields into dialogue with one another. Yeah. Well, more often than not, one side's doing all the talking, the other side's doing all the uh, doing all the note taking and revising right. its views. And that's theology, right? How can we get theology to align with science? What Hansby's book was one of the first things I've seen is theology talking back. And not in a critical mm. way, but in a productive way of showing science that it's not theologically or philosophically neutral, nor has it ever been. And right. that, I think that's, I think that's the future, um, not only just for theology and theology and science, I think for apologetics as well. I think that's a really untapped field. Yeah, I totally agree. See, um, I kind of came into the faith this way. Like, you know, I, I grew up like not really believing in God and it was things like the contingency and uh, the teleology, you know, what they, a lot of people call fine tuning that kind of piqued my interest, you know, especially like uh, what's known as the local fine tuning, like, you know, the precision and like the ice age cycles, the level of plate tectonics, volcanism, and all of these conditions that are right for uh, advanced life to survive and thrive. So I've always uh, had a passion for that as well. Yeah, I think what what's really nice about that is, um, and Hanby's book will touch on this, is we've been conditioned to think very numerically and quantitatively. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing wrong with that, um, but it is something that is a sort of product of the modern scientific imagination. Right. So whenever we can start putting numbers to things and showing quantitative measures that's, that seem to suggest some, some sort of des design, some sort of working intelligence, that speaks to us a lot more. And I think it's more apologetically effective for the modern mindset. Uh, my argument is is qualitative. It's not quantitative. Um, so it's got a weakness in that respect. Uh, but I think it's um, it's got a fundamentality to it. The fact that biology itself couldn't exist without teleology. That's essentially the point I'm making that that is more of a strength. Right. So, it, yeah. so yeah, they so just sort of, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, uh, go ahead, please. I was going to say they just sit sort of complementary to each other. And I've talked with people like Rope and Simon Conway Morris who, who see okay. this as two competing uh, teleological arguments, teleological trajectories that can sort of sit hand in hand and sort of um, undergird a greater apologetic case. So um, is there a particular like um, finding of like, you know, evolutionary uh, biology that you cling to more like neo-Darwinianism, process structuralism, mm -hmm. um, you know, with the various views in the extended evolutionary synthesis? Is there one that you kind of gravitate towards more than others or? Yeah, I think the EES, the Extended Evolutionary Synthesis, is is right. And this is just speaking with most of the younger biologists that I know and have been in dialogue with, is that this does seem like the future of, of evolutionary science. Now, mm -hmm. what I, I will say is my project really sort of looks at Darwinian evolution. Okay. And most people within the EES will tell you that the EES is extending the synthesis. It's not doing away with the neo-Norwinian synthesis. That's obviously by the name, right? Yeah. So in a sense, in a sense, um, Darwinism as a sort of primary, if not, you know, the, uh, you know, the primary mechanism of evolutionary change, mm -hmm. uh, that might be a product of the past. Um, and I hate yeah. to say that because so much of my project, you know, I'm <laughs> undermining my own project. There's so much of my project just uses actually looks at Darwinian evolution itself. So uh, but as long as it, as long as it's even a mechanism, I think the argument works. Yeah, that's awesome. So speaking of that, um, let's go ahead and uh, kind of get into the meat of this. Uh, so can you give us a brief summary or overview of what your teleological argument is? 
Yeah, so let's begin. I got to go all the way back to Aristotle, unfortunately. Let's go, brother. And Aristotle, of course, had four causes, right? We had the efficient yeah. cause, the thing doing it, right? So mm -hmm. if it's Michelangelo's David, that's Michelangelo. You have the material cause, the thing that it's made out of. So right. it would be the material that the, the sculpture is made from. You have the formal cause, which would be David. It's a person. When you look at that, you're supposed to see a person. That's the form attached to it. And of course, there's a final cause, the purpose for which it uh, it was made. When Michelangelo made it, he had a purpose in mind. It's what moved him to create it, whether it was to look beautiful for a church. I actually don't, unfortunately, know the history of it, but there, but I can pretty well assert that it wasn't that he had a purpose in doing so. Right? That's that that's also part of the explanation for why Michelangelo's David exists. And you need all four. And that final cause is often used interchangeably with teleology, right? So that's what I'm looking at. Well, we get into the modern world uh, and with modern science and with people like Bacon and Descartes, they really sort of wanted to do away with final causation and formal causation, final causation especially. And this actually came not from scientific concerns, but from theological concerns. And I can get into that. But long story short, what ended up happening was final and formal causation were sort of done away with in science and efficient mm. material causation became, especially efficient causation became the sort of backbone of the scientific enterprise. So when I ask, even today, when I say what, what caused something, right. normally what I mean is the efficient cause. I don't mean what the final cause or the formal cause, right? Sure. So if I looked at Michelangelo's David, I said, what's the cause of this? It makes sense if I said, well, it's Michelangelo carving it. Uh, it wouldn't make sense to say the person of David or David, you know, uh, that you might give me a funny look if I said that. That's shaped our modern imagination. And of course, that infiltrated science uh, in, say, astronomy or physics uh, or chemistry. You don't ask, what is a molecule for? Right. Uh, you don't ask what a planet is for. I wonder what that planet's there for, what its purpose is. Mm -hmm. But scientists, if they discover, say, a stegosaurus and they see its tail spikes, one of the first questions they ask is, what's it there for? That's perfectly appropriate. So biology has clung on to teleology. It's clung on to final causes using this, this idea of what is it there for? Aristotle's not fully dead. He exists still very prominently within the biological field. And so the question then becomes, if we do believe in a materialistic, atheistic universe, uh, one that's purely mechanistic, efficient causes only, there is no sort of grander purpose. Purposes are sort of alien because they're products of minds. Minds give purposes. How do we account for this? You can't say that the stegosaurus itself gave itself that purpose. And so that's the question. It's the problem of teleology. And then uh, for the past few decades, it has been uh, the most well-discussed topic in the philosophy of biology is how do we deal with this fact that biology itself doesn't even seem to make sense outside of this. There's one great quote that I, I love to use, which is uh, nothing in biology makes, it's not evolution that nothing in biology make, can make sense without. It's teleology. And yeah, that, I like that. Yeah. yeah. And that's a that's uh, that's not from a Christian. Uh, that's not from a Christian source. It's literally just getting to the fact that by what makes a thing seem to be alive is the fact that it has purposes. That seems to be why we mentally think of something as as alive. It has some sort of purpose or goals or orientation, we might say. Right. That, that's what I was thinking. You see, uh, not just in intelligence, but in, in intentionality and aboutness. Right. Right. Exactly. And that becomes quite difficult to maintain. So uh, the materialist atheistic perspectives have, have tried many different ways to get around this. For instance, they've, they've said, well, perhaps it's just a product of uh, ev uh, evolution. So that's usually the favorite mm -hmm. thing to appeal to is, well, if so, for instance, these, these the tail spikes on a stegosaurus, 
-hmm. Well, it helped it defend itself in the past. Mm -hmm. And so whenever we say, well, this is what it's for, all we're talking about is this sort of propensity for it to survive or how it has in the past helped the creatures to survive. And that's usually an attempt to sort of hand wave it off and try to say, that's what we mean. That's what we mean when we talk about purposes in biology. There's nothing more to it than just an evolutionary history or, uh, you know, the sort of backward looking perspective or occasionally they'll have a forward looking or if it would perhaps in the future, then mm-hmm. that that's going to be the purpose, some sort of survival advantage. So and that's been the sort of attempt to get around that. It's known as the etiological perspective. And I, I've written a little uh, on the article we yeah. talked about of it. Right. Right, which I recommend everyone check out. Uh, that's actually available on Capturing Christianity. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, I was going to kind of uh, ask you, you know, what, what some pushback is you get. Um, I'd like to kind of uh, get into our, you know, because you have people like uh, Draper who make, you know, arguments from evolution, like being more um, compatible with, co- you know, indifference. Mm-hmm. But um, before we get into the philosophical objections, are there any like other uh, scientific objections, you know, you know, objections you would run into from the scientific community? Those would be the major ones. We can get into, there has been, um, there's been dozens of other proposals. The ones that have gotten, uh, the one I should say that has gotten the biggest um, adherence has been the etiological perspective. That idea that Right. Uh, evolution can account for purposive language, right? So for instance, mm-hmm. the reason, the purpose of a heart is to pump blood. Well, what does that mean? It means that in the past, a heart that pumps blood has helped my ancestors survive. That's the purpose in my heart. Right. So um, I guess kind of diving into more of the philosophical aspect. Um, now, I, I do hear quite a bit of, you know, arguments uh, for uh, atheism from, you know, natural evil, from animal pain and suffering, like, you know, how do we as theists, you know, try, you know, propose teleology in the light of things like, you know, fawns needlessly dying in forest fires, right? things like that. So would you want to go ahead and get into that? Yeah, absolutely. So what what is really interesting when it comes to these natural evils is how well I thought the ancient Christian tradition had already sort of looked ahead and given us answers mm. for that. Okay. So I actually had a discussion with someone very recently about cancer. How do we account for cancer? It's dysteleological. And dysteleological is a term that's, you know, thrown around is it doesn't seem to have a purpose. Um, And I would actually strongly push back to that um, because I think that these evils, these uh, evils, when you actually look at them from a closer perspective, they have to presuppose. It's very much like a moral argument. They have to presuppose Mm. the very order and purpose in order to even get off the ground. So, for instance, what is a cancer cell but a cell reacting uh, in a way that's reproductive. It's reproducing itself. It's doing something that for the cell seems like a good, right? Yeah. It's doing something for, it's good for the cell, the individual cell. Now, why that's wrong is that sort of competes with the good of me. So, so for instance, if I were unfortunately to contract cancer, the goods of my own life, uh, my own life and well-being would be impacted by the goods of these individual cells reproducing and trying to, uh, uh, trying to do their best for their own sort of individual purposes, right? So what you have here is you actually don't, uh, when you talk about evils, you talk about these dysteleological, what you mm-hmm. have is two clashing goods and the greater good being outcompeted by a lesser good. Cells are supposed to function, get a function, teleology, have a purpose for the greater organism. Right. When that misaligns, that's whenever you get evils, it's when you get don't have this higher order purpose being served. Instead, these lower order purposes are being served. 
And that's when, when you run these, te these, these, this teleological arguments, you ultimately get to a point where you have to, you have to presuppose these lower order goods in order to say they're being outcompeting greater order goods. Now that doesn't answer the question of why lower order goods outcompete greater order goods. But what it does do is it says, and even, even just to make this argument, you have to presuppose teleology, biological teleology. And so the argument actually, the very fact of this teleology is right. actually could be used as evidence for my case. That's so interesting. So um, do you, would you say that there's sort of trade-offs? Cause um, you know, when I hear like, you know, uh, cases of natural evil, it's like, well, you know, hurricanes are, are devastating, but they also regulate precipitation. You know, these earthquakes, you know, help, uh, uh, you know, minerals and everything to come up. And it's mm -hmm. like, uh, even like uh, animal predation, you know, we need predator to prey relationships for functioning ecosystems. So it seems to be like you know, in an order or like a almost like a fine tuning to that process. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a scholar uh, I'm good friends with. Her name's Bethany Solaretter. She's out mm -hmm. at Oxford. Uh, she's done some fantastic work on this, uh, especially uh, some of her earlier work on has been uh, absolutely phenomenal. So I recommend anyone who's wanting to delve into this to check out her work. But yeah, you've you've pointed out exactly right that most of the natural these evil natural processes, earthquakes, tsunamis, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. are natural outcomes of things that are good for right. the. And what happens is is when my again getting back to this, my lower order goods compete with theirs. So let's say I want to go suntanning on a beach, and mm -hmm. a wave comes up, you know, the tide comes in and and you know drags me out to the ocean and drowns me. That then, but what happened is, is I was trying to actualize my own good something good for me, some purpose or order that I was going toward. The ocean was doing what it's supposed to do. And those two clashed, right? right? And that's when you have, again, a clash of goods. So again, what we see here is exactly what you're pointing out. These are goods. And that's all you right. need to really show in order to, to defeat this argument is what I'm proposing. At least defeat it as an argument for atheism is to show that there is these competing goods because these goods themselves presuppose in a very sort of platonic way, the good. Right. The good itself, which is for Plato, for Aristotle, for the classical Christian tradition, that's just another name for God. Now, we can talk about how you get from the good to God, but that's right. But as it stands right there, that's that's how the argument goes. Yeah, it, it almost kind of reminds me of uh, Brian Davies work. Uh, he, he's done a lot of work on that. And uh, yeah, so, you know, we know that, you know, with like predator to prey relationships, you know, that the, uh, you know, the carnivores actually help the herbivores survive and thrive and then likewise uh and everything so I, I think that's so fascinating that we have such you know precision in a functioning ecosystem it just it shows you know an intelligence and an intentionality mm -hmm. uh, that i think is really remarkable and to kind of uh go off that I, I was wondering what you think of you know how like what we would you know say the cosmic fine tuning that uh you know you have to have all these perimeters for a life permitting universe you know for you know, we have things like, you know, the universe forms hydrogen, helium, and tiny traces of lithium, beryllium, and boron. And then you mm -hmm. get these other heavy, heavier elements that form in the furnace of stars over billions of years uh, that, you know, becomes a periodic table of elements. This expands, uh, forming galaxies, rocky planets. And then, you know, you have the, the origin of life. And then once that microbial life starts growing, you also have the precision in the, you know, uh, atmospheric conditions, the oxygen levels, degree of plate tectonics. Mm -hmm. um, so the way I see it, it's like you have all these different things that, that come together uh, towards an end goal and it's sort of like embodied moral agents. 
Um, so what are your thoughts on that, on, on how it sort of all accumulates? Yeah, then there's been increasingly increasing scholarship on this idea that um, um, for life uh, to even evolve, it's not just that life needs to be fitted to the environment. The environment must be fitted to life. So there's a sort right. of two-way yeah. fitness going on. And I get into fitness quite a bit, mostly from the direction of organism to environment, because I think that's mm -hmm. teleological. It's True. teleology all the way down. Um, yeah. But yeah. Um, the, this argument, I mean, when it comes to it, I think what you're pointing out very, very clearly is for Aristotle, everything had a final cause. And for Plato, everything had a final cause, though he didn't use that language. Um, everything was oriented toward the good. And I think what we're seeing with Christians is a slow rediscovery because it was Christians who ultimately did away with that system. And now atheists have jumped on board. And I see what I see <laughs> with all of this is a slow return back to the classical Christian tradition that recognized that everything is teleological. Everything is directed in this intricate system uh, towards an absolute good. And so that's that's where uh, I think apologetics in the future. You're seeing you're seeing this cumulative case nearly of a teleological right. argument yeah. is from physics down to, say, planetary systems um, all the way through. And so I think I think this uh, will build is building up slowly a cumulative case that I think provides a powerful a powerful uh, argument for God's existence and honestly a powerful worldview and an antidote to a lot of the yeah. psychological feelings of purposelessness and depression that we feel today. Oh, absolutely. I, th I think that's such a good point. And yeah, it's like, you know, we have a, a, a and even as aesthetics, uh, you know, we have a beautifully ordered cosmos and all things within the cosmos. We see all these processes harmonize and work together towards the uh, ends and, and goals. And um, I think theism uh, offers the best explanation of why there should be anything at all and why, you know, we should be in such an orderly, beautiful universe that it is geared and suited uh you know for bringing about life so yeah. yeah i think i think that's that's really interesting yeah and i think it was paul dirick uh correct me at the end if i'm wrong i might be uh misattributing this quotation who said beauty was more a sign of the truth than correspondence with the empirical evidence and he's talking mm. about physical theories right. uh whether that's an exaggeration or not, what it does reveal is of the very ancient christian idea that beauty truth and goodness were, were all one and the same yeah, yeah, that, that's so amazing. I really like that. Um, so what kind of, who would you recommend uh, for, you know, people in the audience that want to, like, you know, really look into this argument more? Uh, what are some recommendations you would have? For that yeah, yeah, there's quite a few. There's good, uh, good ones. There's Alex Proust did a series of lectures recently um, mm -hmm. at the University of Oxford um, on natural theology. He delves into this argument. Um also, Rob Coons, uh, if you type in just yeah. Rob Coons, the great philosopher, yeah. uh, just type in biology and te teleology, you'll get a good uh, you'll get a good lecture on that. Although although I don't agree with everything he says in the lecture, it is a good lecture. Um, okay. And I think that's an easy uh, entrance. He also has a book, Realism Regained, which is good. I have um, that book. Uh, I've been meaning to start on that. Yeah, it's a difficult one, but it's a great one. Um, Let's see. Planiga actually touches on this in, in uh, Warrant and Proper Function when he talks about proper functionality, as I quote in my article. Uh, other people, Mark Ockrent would be another one. He has a book called Nature and Normativity. It's not a theistic book, but it does argue for the, for the reality of, of biological teleology. And so mm -hmm. I think that's a good starting point because that's sort of premise one of the argument. So Mark okay. Ockrent would be the one book um, that I'd recommend. Yeah, and um, another thing uh, I was just thinking of is, um, and Foz Rana from Reasons to Believe brings this up a lot, and, and I think it's a really interesting point as far as the history of life on the planet's surface, because it seems like we have, um, 
this microbial life that paves the way in very unique ways for advanced, uh, more advanced life. And you even look at, you know, the, the epochs in history, like the Jurassic and the Jurassic, you know, it lays down the, these biodeposits that we use to make a high tech global civilization and can make morally relevant decisions with, with uh, the biodeposits that have built up over the last 3.8 billion years, which I think is really interesting. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it is an interesting argument. Um, I'm not sure what sort of evidential value you could give that for theism, um, because how much, uh, like, how, how do you know when it's when something is fortuitous versus when something is designed for a purpose? Um, that's why I think when you get to sort of logical necessity arguments, like my argument, mm -hmm. or ones where you can actually put numerical values to, that's when mm -hmm. the apologetic value really sort of begins to take off. Is because then you can actually see it's necessary, you know, in, in the case of my argument, it's necessary for some grounding in an ultimate good in order for biology to even be a, a real scientific field. Or you have, say, the fine tuning argument. I think there's a apologetic value to that just for the simple sake of we are quantitative. We love quantitative measures and we can actually yeah. put yeah. numbers to it. Right. And so uh, th those are interesting arguments. And I think from a Christian perspective, you could see that. As far as the apologetic value of it, I think it loses a teeny bit simply because um, not saying that he shouldn't be doing this. Uh, so I don't want to be misheard there. But I do, do think the reason why these arguments haven't picked up in strength is because mm -hmm. it's difficult. You can't actually pinpoint when something is just a fortuitous accident rather right, than as, say, a, as opposed to being more intentional. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think yeah. at from a Christian theological perspective, you know, as C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity, not just because. Uh, like I believe in the sun, not just because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. That it gives you a lens for understanding this as not just fortuitous. Right. And so there is a there is a bit of a value in that capacity. And I think that's that's the thing that uh, Christian, I think that's when apologetics is actually at its best, is whenever it provides a lens through which to interpret reality in a way that uh, is most meaningful, mm -hmm. um, uh, most meaningful, beautiful, and corresponds to the way that the way they see it. Absolutely. And um, I, I'm curious, that, that kind of brings up an interesting question. Do you see any relevance to moral agency in uh, the biological processes and the teleology within biology? Would yeah. you say it, it's geared towards uh, moral agency or moral agents? Yeah. And there's a lot of good work from a, um, she just recently retired, Sarah Coakley out of, o mm -hmm. or sorry, out of Cambridge. Uh, she's done a lot of good work on game theory and how evolutionary theory sort of is a virtue crafting machine in a sense. Um, and I would agree with that. Um, but even from a more broad scale, the the tradition I'm working in actually has a long tr um, uh, tradition really within the field of ethics. Um, so yeah, I think you pinpoint a really good point there, which is natural law theory, which yes. is the idea. Yeah, which is the idea basically that things have ends, natural ends. And it doesn't, and to be a good human being is to fulfill those ends in the same way that to be a good fisherman means that I have a good rod. It, it, it entails certain prescriptions on me that I go fishing at the right time, that I do X, do Y, do Z. In the same way to be a good human being entails that I fulfill certain functions that are natural to the, what it means to be a human being. So in very similar way, that's all goodness means for them. But I think it's a very simple ancient idea of what goodness means. I, I actually find that a very powerful moral case. Right. So what do you think of uh, the fifth way by Aquinas? That's one of my <laughs> fifth way is great. Uh, fifth I love it. Yeah. So fifth way, uh, unfortunately, uh, the fifth way, uh, when Aquinas talks about the fifth way, that's actually the summa. Uh, let's point the right direction. The summa right behind okay. me um, is actually his one of his shortest versions. He actually gives the argument at multiple places throughout his works. And what we have is quite often a, a, a misunderstood 
as much as I love mm-hmm. the Dominican fa- uh, the Dominican brothers, they mistranslated that that section. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually am a huge fan of the fifth way. It will make its way into the final product. Um, but a fifth oh, way, nice. yeah, the fifth way that um, a fifth way that's actually fleshed out far more than I think most um, treatments of it have been, because I think it's unfortunately misinterpreted. Because Aquinas is making a pretty much identical argument to to what I am, though in a, obviously a very shortened form. And he's not he's focusing on uh, the universe writ large. It was sort of an accepted fact that things tended towards their own good back mm-hmm. back in the day, whether they were living or non living. Uh, today, right. to make that case, you only see that in biology because, like you know, like I was pointing out with like Bacon and uh, Descartes mm-hmm. and Marcel, and there's a few other figures. Uh, scientific science doesn't do with purposes outside of biology. So right. I'm trying, in a sense, you could actually, yeah, uh, I think you picked up on something real key. You could actually see mine as an updated uh, version of Aquinas's Fifth Way, specifically right. for uh, contemporary context. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I was thinking. And, you know, especially with this, you know, these processes, uh, you know, that aren't intelligent themselves being guided by intelligence and intentionality, which I think is really interesting. But um, I also like uh, Swinburne's argument. And I kind of wanted to get your take on that because he'll say something like, uh, you know, if God exists, it would be moderately probable that he would create human beings and so human bodies. The laws of nature would have to be, you know, specifically fine-tuned if they are to bring about mm-hmm. the existence of human bodies. So the evidence of the existence of human bodies adds to the probability of theism over naturalism. And they, in other words, we should kind of expect these laws and processes to be geared towards developing human bodies or embodied moral agency, I guess, if you want to take it a little further. What are your thoughts on the work Swinburne's done with this? Yeah, Swinburne. Swinburne is... Um... What I do appreciate about Swinburne, though I work sort of on the border between analytic and non-analytic philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, Swinburne is just classical analytic. And yeah. when it comes to it, I mean, despite some of my critiques of uh, analytic philosophy writ large, I do th- I do think like for somebody who is analytically inclined, his arguments are fantastic. Uh, they're probably at top notch along with Plantinga's. Of if someone who who literally let's take the method, the very narrow method given to us within analytic philosophy, sure. let's run with it, and you still sort of arrive at a natural theology, right? Because yeah, I mean, if we're just going to talk about like like you, I think you've very well summarized this point. If you're just going to talk about the existence of embodied moral agents, human agents like us, mm-hmm. that on its own is that more probable on theism or atheism? You know, th- those those are interesting. Ar- I, I always find those as interesting arguments, especially, again, I keep I feel like a broken record getting back to a very quantitative sort of mindset is when we're dealing with probabilities uh, and into and when we actually deal with probabilities, I actually have a criticism of how we deal with it. But, oh, okay. yeah, I, unfortunately, I think a lot of how you see probabilities are dealt with today is that we do so intuitively. It just seems more probable to me. Um, and that might off, uh, more so reflect our current cultural circumstance, the current ways we think, the current ways we were taught, more than it actually reflects anything ontological. Um, there's no way to sort of separate those two out. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Have you heard of the incredulous stare? No, no, I have not. So in, in analytic philosophy, it's 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 sort of a joke, It's but it's not as well, uh, not, which is, uh, it's this idea that in analytic philosophy, it counts as a, reputa- as a refutation if a very well-trained, intelligent person uh, in philosophy, intelligent philosopher has looked at your arguments, tried very much to understand it, and they come away not understanding it. <laughs> that acts as a refutation. Um, oh, and it's also sometimes yeah, called, yeah. jokingly called the incredulous stare. Like when you get right. that stare, um, 
that's not originally how it was used, but that's how it's, I've been, I've seen it more, more increasingly being used. Um, right. And again, again, uh, that's actually, that actually does take, you know, like I, I see a lot of uh, analytic philosophers say, I find it implausible that so I find it implausible that we, sure. I'm actually I'm helping uh, someone, uh, a paper, an analytic philosopher, Hindu, and he does oh, that nice. quite a few. He does it quite a few times where he says, we find it implausible that X, X, Y, and Z, um, and gives reasons for it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, that's just, that's typical analytic philosophy. And I find that yeah. I'm, I'm a little critical of that because it doesn't account for its own history, history. The fact that, you know, the fact that the reason most analytic philosophers are skeptical of final causation is purely historical, that we are children of Descartes. Uh, it's not a fact, uh, you know, if had they been born 500 years ago, they would have found it implausible that it wasn't, you know. Mm. Um, so we are shaped by our history and we're shaped by our tradition in a way that I'm I'm actually quite um, happy to see that a lot of analytic philosophers are coming to understand. Yeah, that's true. But I, I also, I think there's a lot of value in, um, you know, really like, you know, being uh, clarifying, you know, positions, uh, analyzing it uh, being, being clear, methodological. Mm -hmm. Um, I, th I do think it, it's a good way to understand nature and ultimate reality also. Yeah. Yeah. So let me, yeah. But so I, I've swung one way, let me swing back. Okay. So, uh, yeah, cause I do feel like I've been a little critical. So analytic philosophy, yeah. I've compared it to uh, a hammer. Hammers are mm -hmm. great. They're a wonderful tool, but you can't build a house with a hammer. You need material, you need nails, you need all these other things. Analytic philosophy is a method is right. good for shaping it's good for uh perhaps a saw would be better let's go with a saw because it's good for shaping it's good for cutting away the excess and it's good for shaping the material you already have but it always exists within a certain tradition a certain certain beliefs certain things that we find plausible or implausible right. um and th those are extra those are outside of analytic philosophy and outside the method. So I actually would agree. I do think that clarity and those sorts of things can be helpful quite a bit. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is when we mistake the method for an ontology. And I think uh, that's, that's, that's where we get into danger. Um, because if you actually read the scholastics, uh, mm -hmm. Duns Scotus, especially, um, the clarity and rigor that they practiced, uh, is unparalleled by anyone within the philosophical tradition outside of what I think is, are the analytics. So it's not mm -hmm. as if, uh, the analytics, you know, are, are on their own in that, that capacity. In a lot of ways, they were reacting to German idealism, uh, who mm -hmm. were very unclear yeah. and next yeah. to impossible to read. What I do see, uh, but what I do see is that the, the, the scholastics were more aware of the tradition they were working out of. And that's where I'm seeing analytic philosophy is, is moving toward. Mm -hmm. uh, the classic example I give is Alistair McIntyre. Oh, uh, yeah. William Wood would be another one uh, out of Oxford who's very aware of the, uh, integrating the tradition. Um, and that's something that I'm really, I'm really hopeful for analytic philosophy is bringing in that, that critical, that hammer, uh, that, right. or, uh, sorry, I changed it to a saw, didn't I? The saw, bring yeah. in, bringing that saw into a greater tradition and being critical and self-reflective on the beliefs yeah. that we bring to. Yeah, absolutely. And um, before I forget, um, our good friend Zachary Arden had a question he wanted me to ask you. Yeah. Okay. So this is from Zachary. Uh, he says, well, I think that evolution is inherently irreducibly teleological. Where does a Dennett type picture of evolution go wrong in principle? Yeah. Where to begin on that? So Zachary is a biologist and I know right. he's a, he's a friend. Um, we're, we're open to have him come on as well. Too. Yeah. He, he, uh, fantastic. If you, if you do one of the smartest guys I know. So why is evolution inherently and irreducibly teleological, right? 
So there's many different ways we could come at this. Now, one, I would say biological organisms are because what makes something what it is, is its goal, its teleology. Right. Really? So yeah. if uh, the, the definition I, I, I used to when I've given talks on this, I, I give up the, the standard definition of what makes a planet. Right. It's cleared out its orbit. You know, Pluto doesn't qualify, uh, but Uranus does. Right. Earth does. So there's a very clear physical definition. Now, let me ask you, what makes a heart a heart? That uh, to pump blood to give life. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's defined by its purpose, right? My yeah. heart is very different from a two-chambered, it's four-chambered. Mine's very different from a very tiny two-chambered fish heart. Right. It's very different from a three-chambered uh, amphibian heart. And it's obviously leagues away from an artificial heart, but they all are hearts, not sure. because of anything physical about them. If we got an alien heart, it would still be a heart, even if it was completely different. It's what makes it a heart is its function. So biology itself, pre and you could do this with any trait, um, Biology itself presupposes that its very identity is built on, on teleology. Now, that's biology. Now, what about evolution, right? So I'm going to uh, for, uh, foreground. This is a bit of a, if you're okay with it, it's going to be a bit of an extended argument, if that's okay. Sure, yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, bro. So, and this is, gets into the idea of natural selection, right? right. Natural selection, how we normally think about that is nature selecting. It's a complex yeah. argument. Slow yeah. me down if I get in, right? So- there's a thing, obviously, you'll know about in analytic philosophy, causal arrows, right? Yes. X to Y, right? X causes Y. The arrow goes from one to the other. So how should we think of natural selection, right? Is natural selection, the is the causal arrow going from environment to creature, or is it going from creature to environment? And we can have any combination of this, but that's really the two agents being, you know, the two agents in question, right? environment and creature. So where is the primary causal era? Where do we want to sort of ground that in? Well, uh, I think uh, there's an analytic philosopher, um, Jerry Fodor. Uh, yeah. He wrote a book yeah. quite recently, um, What Darwin Got Wrong, and where he comes out against Darwinism because he thinks, because he views the causal arrow going from environment to creature. Most people have misinterpreted the book, uh, but this is his primary argument, is that if, if the causal error of Darwinism goes from environment to creature, well, the environment selects whole creatures, right? It doesn't just select individual traits. Right. So he's, he, as he points out, the environment doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't select, because it doesn't select individual traits, it doesn't distinguish between those things that it's selecting for and those things that are just sort of tagging along, right? So if that's the way we view natural selection, there's no way to differentiate between what's selected for and what uh, Stephen Jay Gould called spandrels, things that sort of yeah. hang hang along. So for instance, to give a, a clear example, my heart pumps blood, but it also makes a thump thump noise. Mm -hmm. The environment has chosen the heart, my heart, for both. But very clearly, we know that the heart, the reason the heart, you know, the reason I'm alive, the reason the heart was selected is because it pumps blood. So it cannot be, despite its name, it cannot be that nature is selecting, the environment is selecting the creature because it selects both. But we very clearly know that the cause, and a, a few of his critics have pointed this out, is that the cause actually is going from creature to environment. It's my heart yeah. doing some good that then I go out into the environment and I'll compete other creatures. So immediately, terminologically, natural selection seems a little confused. It's not necessarily nature select. I'm selecting myself in a sense through nature. So it's a causal yeah. error of me going into the environment, right? Me interacting with my environment. 
And I think that's a better way to view it. So yeah, that deals with it. But then there's a problem, right, with natural selection, which is the fact that, so if it's my traits that go out into the environment and, mm -hmm. and cause my own selection, well, then there's, a, there's an interesting thing. There's this, uh, what's called the statistical model of natural selection, which has gained in popularity recently. And they've pointed out that there's a big problem with this view as well. Now, do you know the difference between uh, natural selection and genetic drift? Or should I define that? Should I define it for the audience? Uh, yeah, probably for the audience. Okay. So for the uh, so for natural selection, when we think of natural selection is big, strong creature A. This is way overly simplified. Big, strong creature A mm -hmm. outcompetes, uh, you know, puny creature B, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what we think of natural selection. Well, genetic drift is thrown in as a sort of other force, a competing force, which is sort of randomness. So say big, strong creature A accidentally gets struck by lightning. Right. And puny creature B survives and reproduces in its its genes that go into the environment, right? That's called genetic drift. So it's sort of the ran a name given for randomness, whereas natural selection is the sort of big mover and shaker of the fittest creatures surviving. Um, well, what the statistical interpretation likes to point out is, is that when you actually try to differentiate themselves, let's say creature A has a 75% chance of survival and creature mm -hmm. B has a 25% chance of survival. Well, it's not a different force acting in each case, right? If I say I have a 25% chance of flipping heads twice, if I flip heads twice, I don't say some external force has come in and overridden natural selection. Right. So the statistical interpretation say genetic drift, even when the puny creature survives, that's just as much a case of natural selection, even though it's unlikely. Mm -hmm. That's just the same thing. So immediately that problematizes. So we saw natural selection is a problem when the causal error going from environment to creature. But they point out it's also a problem going from creature to environment because it can't differentiate right. from randomness and genetic drift. So they've made the provocative statement that natural selection only exists within the notebook of scientists. It just maps our expectations of what are, of what's going to happen. It's not a real thing out in the world. Mm -hmm. And so that's a problem too, because natural selection is supposed to be a mechanism. It's supposed to, uh, you know, it's been compared to a Newtonian mechanism. Elliot Sober, right. one of the best uh, philosophers oh, yeah. biologists, compares yeah. it to that. Um, but it can't be if it's, if it's, uh, if it's this X, uh, this internal going from creature to the environment, it can't be that it can't be a, a mechanism, a force distinct from a, a, a force distinct from genetic drift. So right. either way you have a problem, right? Yeah, After, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So either way, I mean, cause that's the only two ways you could do it. And if you started to try and combine them back and forth, maybe it's environment to creature to environment, you just multiply the problems. You don't do away with them. Right. Yeah. You just add these problems together because the inherent problems sort of disappear by like making the causal arrow more complicated. Yeah. That's kind of like uh, why I, I was thinking about, you know, the role that uh, the precision in the environment, you know, the constraints it places mm -hmm. on the biological process also, because, you know, there are hundreds of features like we need like the right amount of heat in the earth's crust, the volcanic activity, plate tectonics, uh, the oxygenation events and all these like local conditions uh that also kind of put these strains and kind of move the process along or have to be within very narrow perimeters that kind of gets into um the work of like burrow and tipler and you know how yeah you know, all these processes that have to be in place for biology to even take off so yeah no bear and tipler mm -hmm. are, are good on that um and yeah um but just to kind of close that out lest anyone think that i'm a critic of natural selection i'm trying to save natural selection honestly 
because I recognize this as a, as a major issue. And honestly, it has been recognized. The best definition I found of fitness, which we're talking about fitness, right, is fitness. It was actually in a dictionary uh, for biological terms. It said fitness, a, a term every biologist understands, but no one can define. And that's exactly the problem we're in is no matter fitness seems to be the sort of causal thing. A great, this creature A has a greater fitness than creature B. It's its right. fitness is the cause going out into the environment that's doing it. And ultimately what I, I, I'm going to argue is that what biologists are doing is they're smuggling in a concept of a form, a platonic form, mm -hmm. and that these certain functions, it has a higher fitness when the, uh, this form aligns with the environment better than these other creatures. It's perfections, you know, using this plate, this, uh, Thomistic language. It's right. perfections aligned with a sort of natural habitat better than this other creature. And, and this can account for when you add in, and again, this is qualitative. This isn't quantitative. It's cool. Uh, so it's different. This is different from what most analytic philosophers are trying to do. Nevertheless, I yeah. think it's smuggled in. And that's the intu intuition that we're having when we say, no, that's not natural selection. That 25% right. chance when the creature B survives, that's not because creature A is better. It's more fit. It's got its form aligned with the environment better. But there's the problem of immediately we're back to Aristotle. Immediately yeah, we're back yeah. to yeah. teleology, a real teleology that they, right. these things have purposes that creatures with that whose uh, traits serve their functions better, serve their ends, mm -hmm. their purposes better, are more fit in their in this in their natural habitat. And that's yeah. when you start to say. How do you deal with that on an on an atheistic, mechanistic, materialistic paradigm? Right. That's a huge issue. Yeah, uh, that kind of uh, and we have a question in the audience wanting clarification. But just real quick, um, do you think that would play any role in, in um, you know, like junk DNA having useful purposes? Would you see that as being involved in teleology whatsoever that, you know, what we thought was, you know, junk DNA left over, you know, mm -hmm. from a common ancestor is actually useful and, and helps us how does how does what role does that play in anything or does it play in anything? i think the very question itself presupposes it right is gotcha. so so for instance you know how i've seen it poses is it useless well then how do you account for it well you yeah, know there's this idea yeah. that viruses have come along and attached the genetic material right these viruses have their own purposes they're fulfilling right so it's this lower level teleology or is there a higher level organism teleology mm -hmm. that these things serve so uh the question of dunk dna i think it's really fascinating but at the end of the day, whatever answer you come to, you're going to end up right back at the same spot, I think, which is right. that you, you have, have to presuppose it to either way. even ask it like you were saying. Yeah, yeah. either way, you're, you're sort of trapped yeah. in this. You're trapped in using teleological terms to account for it. Right. That's so interesting. OK, so we did have a question um, just for clarification. Wouldn't natural selection not be a creative force, but a selective one of pre-existing information? Yeah, and that's exactly, and uh, I 100% I assume that. Although I will say there is questions within philosophy about, I don't get into that, and I don't really try to take right. a stance on that, whether or not we can view natural selection as itself creative. I don't really want to deal with that. That's a little sort of a side topic in philosophy of biology. It's great yeah. literature for uh, Hosanna. Hosanna, if you want to get into that, that is real interesting literature, probably more interesting than what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, so what I'm doing is, is I'm saying nat nature, let's take the first example of nature selecting the creature right the causal error right. going from environment to creature right. right it's selecting the entire creature it didn't create the creature it's selecting it right exactly mm -hmm. but also in the other way the causal error going from creature to environment it's the creature's already existing traits that cause it to outcompete to have higher fitness and outcompete other creatures so in both cases i'm actually 
taking the more restrained, restrictive view that natural selection is not creative. It's merely selective. So, yes. And um, he did also ask, um, what is defined as natural selection in this dialogue? Yeah, so natural selection is this idea of um, you need uh, is as oh gosh I'm I'm spacing because uh, Richard Lewinton gives a great definition of this and I'm trying off the top of my head to recall it so check out Richard Lewinton's definition of it but basically what he says is you need a population you need selection pressures and then you need levels of fitness essentially I believe those are the three factors so you need a population of creatures there needs to be some sort of pressure there needs to be some sort of environment. Uh, like constraints, yeah. constraints, right? That it's got to be there. Uh, yeah. um, but then you got to imagine which way the causal arrow goes. But we got into that, right? And then you got to imagine levels of fitness, and that's that's that third element, that fitness element that I'm really getting into is questioning because that's a necessary. It's sort of a. It's been a, it's been seen as a sort of three legged stool, right? If you unless you have all three legs, the stool doesn't stand. It's that third one that I'm trying to preserve. Oh, yeah. And uh, Spartan Theology, our good friend Ethan Bergen says hello. So what's up, Ethan? Um, so I, I think this is a really uh, fascinating, fascinating stuff. And I, I think it's a really important argument. So what importance or significance would you think that this teleological argument uh, has for Christian theism as a whole? Yeah. So and, I... uh, even uh, the philosophy of religion in general, because this seems to be like a really underrated argument that you know, I would really like to see pushed out there more. Yeah, I I think, well, uh, I'll give you multiple things because a lot of things are coming to mind. From a science and religion perspective, I think it allows uh, really one of the first times that theology is able to talk back to science and basically uh, say, yeah. hey, you're presupposing a certain certain theology. And one in one case, you're trying to hold a mechanistic sort of voluntaristic view of God. And that's in Hanby's book quite a bit. That's his, I leave that argument to him. And I think he's argued it quite persuasively. He calls it theological extrinsicism. Mm -hmm. you, you have this view of God, yet at the same time, the very science you're doing is presupposing a more classical in theological intrinsic intrinsic view of God. And that's and that's the sort of like that's actually a real critique, a theological critique of the field of biology. And I think that's a that's actually a productive conversation biology and theology should be having. Is a two is this two way interface? Whereas you know before it's usually like. How do we fit the historical atom with evolutionary science or something like that? Right, you know, it's, right. it's science doing all the talking and theology doing all the compromising to try and fit it in. Right. Sure. Yeah. So I think in that capacity, it's good. I think uh, theologically, I think it allows us to see how God works evo in evolution. We had we had a bit of mm. conversation about, you know, how do we fit theology or how do we fit evolution into a Christian theology? Exactly. Well, my, yeah. Well, my argument would make sense of evolution is the very capacity of creation to be uh, to be the basically you know, for God to work in. It's a view of divine causation that's quite eminent, very eminent, more eminent than even the intelligent design theorists have it. And yet at the same time, it's completely, uh, it's more in line with the scientific views, I'd argue, than sort of an atheistic materialism, Darwinian evolution view would be. So I think that's actually right. a fantastic, apologetically, theologically, uh, theologically views of divine causation. I think that's going to be uh, quite productive. And I mean, the list can keep going on and on. I think this is a quite, I think this is the future. I think the teleological argument should see as yeah. um, complementary to the already existing approaches, which have so many defenders. And I'm, I'm grateful that they do. But this feels like a, an untouched area that I think theologians really ought yeah. to start um, signing on to. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, and I think it makes a good abductive case 
Because, you know, in, in scientific reasoning, you know, we'll look at theories like what's simple, but yet going to unify and harmonize, you know, multiple data points. What has the explanatory power and the scope, the coherential virtues, you know, what goes off what we already have as warranted beliefs. And um, I think theism being a simple hypothesis really fits well. So we can say that, you know, perhaps the best explanation of the what apparent teleology and biology is that there's an intelligence and intentionality behind the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would agree. I would I, I would see this. I would see this as a very I, I might see this. You might see this as a way um, as a bridge between people who have completely you know taken out teleology from biology there's a lot of right. persons who are reluctant to even to make such descriptions purely from a scientific mentality yeah. yeah and those who you know who are um on board with say creationism or, or intelligent design and i know you work for rtb I, I love hugh ross i've met him he's a great guy yeah. um but for people like even i mean in the work work the it works even for an intelligent design perspective i just focus on evolution this because right. like i said it works for life writ large it's teleological um but it does provide, I think, a middle path of being able to affirm a very eminent God who's creative, who's working in creation, and yet fully someone who can fully subscribe to Darwin Evolution without fear of, um, without fear that it somehow makes the intrinsic probability of Christian theism less probable and makes it more probable is my argument. So it, it, it undercuts that atheist. You know, Darwin or uh, Dawkins said that Darwin enabled someone to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist, and I'm right. my whole point is saying not so fast. Yeah, exactly. and I think that's I think that's kind of helpful. I think that will hopefully be a helpful offering for Christian theology and apologetics. Yeah, and reasons to believe they they have many different views. Uh, I, I've talked with um, Fazali Rana, and he's very sympathetic to process structuralism. And so, in, in a way, they would sort of see like you know you have this process structuralism, and then perhaps God uh, de novo creates things like the origin of life, uh, eukaryotic cells, mm -hmm. you know. The, the body structures and everything. So while I, I lean closer towards evolutionary creationism, I do see some overlap sort of in sort of some of the old earth creation, evolutionary creationism. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is um, while I approach it differently, the idea of people, you know, like uh, Stephen Meyer, who I've recently did a, a show with. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, Stephen Meyer, he um, tries to read out of biological, uh, complex uh, i don't want to say biological complexity he tries to read out of the dna uh information systems that um right, right. the hints of an intelligent design well if my case is true um then life sort of is built into the cosmos essentially right. i mean to, to to use a sort of rough analogy it's sort of built into the cosmos because god acts as a teleological end towards which everything is striving especially life forms are striving um, oh. that's getting real into the, the roots that I haven't really talked about yet, but, right. but it, it would actually account for everything that, that Stephen Meyer is pointing out theologically like, like he likes, but also it doesn't have, have to do away with Darwinian evolution. Yeah. So, um, would you say it, it could, you know, this, uh, teleology and biology, like, you know, your work is really emphasizing, could it provide sort of a bridge between, you know, the theistic evolution, ID, old earth uh, proponents. I hope so. That would actually be another, uh, uh, that is, so I've actually presented this. There's a conference, the American Scientific Affiliation. Uh, despite its name, it's a Christian, it's a firmly right. Christian organization with most of the scientists. And I presented this. Uh, there's some uh, intelligent design theorists there and quite a few uh, 
evolutionary biologists who obviously believe in evolution. And so that's been a point of contention. And I actually presented this as a medi mediating position for everyone. Uh, it went over well, I think, I hope so. But that is, yeah, you, you point that out. And that's actually been one of the ways I've posed this is I hope oh. I do hope that this can be a mediating point where intelligent design theorists can get what they want, which is they want to see God working with it. They see God in right. the biological systems. And I don't I don't deny that. I, I have a hard time denying that. But at the same time, there's also these things like evidences for common descent and all these other things that these other biologists right. are like, how do you how do you deal with that? Um, and I see this as a mediating position. Yeah, that, that's so cool. So we are, we, you and I talk about so much stuff. I didn't know you actually worked on that uh, because that's something that's really important to myself is, is kind of bridging the gap b between these two positions. And that's something um, that, that I myself am, am really working towards. It's kind of like I was saying with um, something like, you know, the environmental, the fine tuning or mm -hmm. precision uh, in the environmental constraints, like kind of sort of like, um, laying down tracks like like if the biological process is like a train that you know these uh, precision in the conditions sort of lay down the tracks that you know life needs to go um so i've kind of seen that as a way you know both parties can kind of get what they want may, maybe more so uh with one than the other but um yeah yeah i really like that have you have you checked out uh zachary ardern's and uh rope's mm -hmm. uh video on uh, capturing christianity yet i haven't he's told me about that and i need to yeah, I, 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 uh, I pose this in one of Cameron's videos. I pose this as a complimentary argument to me because I think, uh, I think we're sort of on the same wavelength of wanting of wanting exactly that, of seeing intelligent yeah. the goods of intelligent design theory while recognizing yeah. while recognizing the value of evolutionary theory as, I mean, a true scientific theory. Yeah, absolutely. And um, speaking of that, our good friend Hosanna has some more questions. Perfect. He wanted to know. Uh, when using the term evolution, is it defined on a macro or micro scale? I know what you're going to say, but I'll let you say it. Yeah, uh, both, honestly. Um, those distinctions that you do find them in some evolutionary biologist literature, they've mostly been picked up by creationists um, because they, there is it's really tough to define the line. So, for instance, would you say a speciation event is a instance of macroevolution? Well, Ken Ham believes that creatures differentiate mm -hmm. between different species. Yeah. Um, it's, it's you know, they've got their own science called baromenology to try to differentiate between macro and oh, microevolution. But that's, you know, yeah. that's that's obviously not something macro micro is very, virtually not used within uh, the scientific community. So I don't differentiate um, between the two. If you if you believe in either, I think right. you have to assume this. Um, but I don't I don't make those differentiations. All right. And he follows up again. Um, if it is uh, defined on a macro scale, wouldn't it be contradictory to with the Genesis narrative uses the word kind? Yeah, Byron. Yeah. yeah. So this gets into interpretation of which I am yes. not a biblical scholar, but I will right. say, but I will say um, that I do think, and Alex Bruce has made this argument as well, that there needs to be formal changes. And what I mean by that is there's got to be a point where, say, a Oh, what's a good example? A, a fish evolving into an amphibian or so, or a, right. an ape evolving into a man. There's got to be a point where the ape is no longer an ape. It is a man and not within the lifetime. I mean, the species, there's, there's going to be a creatures that we call one is a human, it's hominid, and one mm -hmm. is not, say, Australopithecine or something like that, right? There's got to be these formal changes. So if we grant the reality of forms, which I'm saying we have to in biology, we because 
even the concept of species, I think, presupposes that. I don't buy into Ernst Mayer's definition of species for anyone who's who's right. in the know on that that niche that topic. If we buy into the reality of forms, then we have to account for formal changes when one creature becomes another creature along this evolutionary process. Right. So my point, so I actually do think that there are, that God is creating through the evolutionary process by being the generator of these forms, that these creatures newly participate within the goodness of God by participating in a different formal structure than they did before. So that's right. actually, that's a, that's my point of God is creating through evolution. There are exact points you could say God created that creature, even though evolutionarily it'll look like a seamless stream, you know, kind of like from day to night, God made day and night, but it's the, the existence of twilight doesn't make me doubt that in the same way evolution, there can be from, um, say Australopithecines to hominid and it can look like a seamless stream. And yet there'd be a point where God makes that formal change and designates and says, this is, this is a human. And there is that formal structural change. Um, and right. Oxford makes that, Matt, that distinction. So I would agree. You could still read Genesis. Creatures do reproduce according to their kind, except on those places where God specially creates. It would, that naturally creatures do that. And that's, that's all that Genesis narrative is trying to communicate is that creatures reproduce according to their kind, unless of divine intervention, of course. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, I'll just say on that uh, briefly that, um, so, you know, you have Hebrew scholars uh, like, you know, Michael Heiser, for example, you know, he'll, mm -hmm. he'll point out that, you know, the literary genre of the ancient Near East at the time, you know, this is written, it's, um, it's much different uh, than we would sort of think of it with our modern Western understanding. And he'll point out that if you look at the uh, Mesopotamian, Egyptian, uh, and, and these different pagan deities that, you know, the Israelites were surrounded with, well, their gods, uh, you know, had certain ways and they had creation narratives. And so a lot of Genesis functions as a polemic to say, no, it's not, you know, the Egyptian sun god who, who makes the sun. Yahweh, you know, created the great light. You'll notice it's called great light to reduce because in a lot of the other cultures surrounding them, it, it was a deity. And so this reduces it to just a, an element under the dominion of Yahweh. And, um, you know, so there's interwoven in that it's an ancient Near Eastern polemic the sort of the pagan deities surrounding the Israelites. And then you have somebody like John Walton who will say that um, it's not about material creation as much as it's about function, that God's uh, in ordering the function of his cosmic temple. And um, what's interesting is even, you know, uh, reasons to believe um, we take sort of a combination of the ancient Near East with a, a literal reading um, from sort of a day age perspective, but even the animals on, on the day age perspective, uh, it, it's reduced. You'll notice it's silent on reptiles. You have, you know, marine life, then you have rodents or crawling, creeping things. Then you have, you'll notice the animals are what are uh, like regulated for, you know, human civilization, like, you know, wild beasts, domesticated animals. And so it's very narrow. And then finally, I don't mean to rant, but, um, Finally, the last thing is, you know, the ancient Hebrews had a different way of classifying things than we do. For example, you know, uh, what they would call birds were just anything with wings. Uh, you know, it could be insects, it could be birds, you know, anything that a bat. Um, and it's not that they're wrong. It's just the way they're, they classified uh, things, you know, for that time. They didn't have a Linnaean classification right, system. Right. Yeah. I mean, and so it's right because a bird was just anything with, uh, you know, with wings. Right. So in that sense, yeah, that's a bird according to their. It just system. doesn't translate well. Right. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I will. I, I just wanted to throw in. Yeah, I, I firmly back up Heiser. Walton, I think, is mostly correct. I think he does. I've actually gotten an argument about with him about this. Uh, oh. Is I think he overemphasizes uh, final causation to the expense of the other three. I think causes, so too. Yeah. Causes, yeah, because uh, there is a point where you, you ask, so what did happen during the six days of creation? You know, if you were standing there, nothing. You know, right. and I, I don't think that's the way they would have. Uh, interpreted that um right I, I think it's hard to deny at least some material yeah. causality um right yeah is, uh, i'm skeptical of that myself and i i do yeah i do value uh heiser's emphasis on genre um i will also back up what you're saying and saying i don't know if any old testament scholar today who would disagree at least i can't think of one uh from the, my conversations and who i've met who would disagree with the idea that genesis was not written in the style uh, in the style that you see young earth creationists interpreting it, it was written in the style of a polemic against the other creation narratives on, on account there. Right. It has to be interpreted as subversive of their accounts. Yeah. For that and, exact um, reason. A lot of people don't know, don't re uh, realize this and they sort of um, mislabel reasons to believe reasons to believe itself is uh, in, in the courses we take, it's, it really emphasizes the ancient near East that, that it, it is a polemic. They just say, well, hey, look, you know, what's being described on these particular days, it just so happens to align with what we know in the early sciences. So I, I think it's pretty much, you know, across the board, the majority of scholars are going to say um, Genesis, like at its most basic root, is an ancient Near Eastern polemic, you know, to the pagan deities. And I, I think that's pretty powerful. It's uh, it's and it's true. It's true. And what it affirms, it's true that it's not these pagan gods. uh they create the sun or order out of chaos. It's Yahweh who is the one true God mm -hmm. made in his image and are to rule the earth as his image bearers. And so I think Genesis is correct in what it affirms or is trying to affirm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, it actually makes sense of things that don't seem to make sense otherwise. So right. for instance, it seems it paints God as sort of limited in knowledge, walking through a field and discovering things and stuff right, like that, right. breathing in as if God has a respiratory system. Right. Um, and there's a lot of the ways and you, you you have to understand, you know, we don't not even young earth creationists take that literally that God wasn't right. literally surprised or um, but it, and it also accounts for certain things like and then God created the great tenyin, which is the mm -hmm. Hebrew word. And we usually translate that as like the great whales or the great beasts of the sea or something like that. We already yeah. said he created that. Why does he say that? Well, if you understand that these were gods, these were gods of chaos. Right. Right. And yes. these ancient pagan. But what he's saying, it's not just saying God created whales. It's saying God is the God of chaos. Even right. in chaos and the turmoil, God is creating order. God has an order and a purpose for that. So there's this richer right. account that you just don't get if you take these as a, in a sort of modern contemporary sense. You lose you lose what it's actually communicating at it, both at, at a greater level and a deeper level. Yeah, absolutely. I remember um, at RTB when uh, we were studying this that uh, a lot of the uh, Egyptian uh, gods would create out, out of the watery chaos called Nun. Uh, you know, they, they would come out and they would form order out of the chaos. And so when you understand that background, you realize that Genesis 1-2 is saying, no, it's not the Egyptian God. It's Yahweh who can create order out of chaos, you know, because you have that formless and void language. And so I, I think you're spot on there. That it's yeah, it's so much more rich, you know. You know, I've actually heard Ken Ham talk about that passage. You know what he thinks of it? Oh, no. <laughs> he says, well, I think these are like plesiosaurs and bosasaurs, like the watery reptiles. And then he's like, that's, and he uses that as a case for uh, that these ancient scholars knowing about these creatures. And I'm just like, mm. yeah. yeah, 
that's one of those cringe moments there. Yeah. 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 Not to make fun of young earth creationists. I just, right. I, 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 my point is that there's a richer meaning there that yeah. if you don't understand the context that you miss. Absolutely. And um, I don't want to, um, uh, cause we've already passed the hour mark, but uh, there's one thing. Um, in, in fact, uh, I was, I, I did a debate with a young earth creationist uh, a few months ago and uh, Ethan, you know, Spartan theology and mm-hmm. I were talking about this, that, um, you know, you'll notice the, the similarities uh, in, in the Genesis account with these other ancient Near, Near Eastern accounts. But what's even more interesting are the differences. So, you know, um, yeah, in, instead of uh, being, you know, slaves to the gods who go about, you know, who are created just to please their whims uh, and do the heavy labor and manual and everything. You'll notice in the Genesis account, uh, we're made in God's image and are to rule the earth as his image bearers and are, are given uh, dignity and mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, just to kind of touch on what you're saying, there's so much more, you know, a, a richer meaning we get when we understand the background and and everything. And um, yeah, so I, I would just say that Genesis is correct in what it affirms. Yeah, I a hundred I, I I'm uh, in a hundred percent agreement with that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, well, I think this has been a super interesting uh, discussion. Um, this is a, a topic, uh, not so much about biology, but, you know, teleology, uh, you know, genesis, the fine tuning, things like that. It's uh, it's something that I happen to be really interested in. And um, yeah, so I thought it was a really good talk. Is there anything you want to leave the audience with before we head out? No, um, other than just say, if you're curious about this topic, uh, Seth P. Hart at Outlook.com. Sorry, it is an Outlook email. That's all that was available. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get I get a lot of uh, get a lot of teasing for that. And uh, check out uh, I'm a regular contributor to uh, Capturing Christianity, uh, the main site. So check out for the blog posts that I have so far and for future ones. So thanks again, Travis. All right. So with that, I guess we're going to go ahead and sign out. Take care and God bless everyone.